Like I said this morning, we're coming to Romans chapter 8, a great turning point in the book of Romans. And as you're turning there, I want to point out one thing before we dive into our text. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses. And in these first 11 verses, Paul uses the word flesh ten times. And it's very important for us to understand the connotation of this word. Uh, It does not mean flesh like we commonly use it, something with skin and bones, uh, something pertaining to our body. Rather, it means, as we see from the whole of Paul's writing and the whole of Scripture, this particular way he's using flesh, it relates to our broken, sinful nature. That part of us which, after the fall, uh, means our human nature. That we are, by definition, broken and fallen. And we can understand how authors use different words in different ways. Uh, For instance, if I were to use the English word run, if I were to say, I am running, that would be a very different statement than if I said the toilet is running. In the same way, uh, authors use these words differently. In our passage, flesh means that which is broken, that which is sinful. So just keep that in mind. I'll read the passage for us. Let us hear now from God's word, Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Uh, I have a question that I need to ask you. It's really been bothering me lately. Maybe you can help me to answer it. The question is this, if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Well, hopefully, between all of us, you all are much brighter than I am. We can put our heads together and and try to solve this mystery. Uh, As as an experiment, let's just think through it together. I, I believe there are two ways we could answer this question. The first is a physical or maybe a physics based answer. And in that sense, of course there's a sound. It would, it would inevitably result from the tree falling and scattering atoms about. And that pattern of atoms moving would be what we call sound waves. So in that sense, there is a sound when a tree falls. 
It's physical. It has to happen. Do you know there's another way that we could answer that question? In more of a metaphysical sense. It's a question that begs at a deeper reality. What is sound itself? Isn't it the communication of that movement of atoms through an elastic medium? In other words, the point of this tricky question is to get someone to realize this simple truth. If the point of sound itself is to alert or inform a hearer of that movement, of those atoms shuffling about, what good does it do to talk about moving atoms if there's no one there to perceive it? Or to put it simpler still, what what good would it do to talk about a deaf person hearing or a blind person seeing? I don't want to sound rude or prejudicial against our hearing or seeing impaired brothers and sisters. I argued many of them communicate far better than I do. But as to their capacities of perception, they are to one degree or another unable to perceive sight or sound. What in the world does that have to do with Romans chapter 8? I think it's imperative for us to realize that there's a very small word in this passage that answers the groanings of the last seven chapters of the book. For you see, the last seven chapters of the book have presented much noise, have presented much of a distorted picture of this reality that we live in. But then Paul begins in verse 1 of our chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That little word, now, has such great importance for our understanding of this passage. I think it could be considered in two different ways. One, Paul is meaning that now, in a sense, after what Christ has done for us, or as a result, in effect of His work on the cross and in His resurrection, now then, there's no condemnation for those who are under His Lordship, who believe in Him as their Savior. But I also think there's a temporal element to that word. Paul is literally saying to the Roman church, now, at this very time, even in your lives now, there is no condemnation. In fact, God cannot see you in Christ as anything else but holy and righteous and good. You see, with Christ on our behalf, it's as if God is deaf and blind to our sin. Paul labors for seven chapters, and I believe comes to a climax at the end of chapter 7. All of this despair and destruction that comes about from our sin as he walks us through those chapters. Talking about our deadness in ourselves. Yes, he does hint at the goodness of God. That his love is demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus. That he died for us. But you remember those verses from the end of chapter 7. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? We see in those verses Paul coming to a great understanding. And he's teaching this to the Roman church and he's teaching it to you and me. 
You see, beloved, sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are at the foundation. We are in rebellion to God. You and I, there is no exception in this room. Paul is saying, you and I are sinners. And don't you know this from your life? I mean, after all, who can say this past week that everything went perfectly? Who can say this past week that they woke up every day on time, they led a full day, got everything done at work, and when they went home to go to sleep, they said, "Ah, I can't wait to wake up in the morning and do that again. No, absolutely not. Not one of us. And you see, Paul drives the point home. He presses us where it hurts. He says, that sin in your life, those destructive things going on, that's not a result of something out there. That's not a result of our country going to hell in a handbasket. That's not a result of all of those things going on in our culture. That's a result of you and me. That's a result of our sinfulness. And then there's deafening silence in the midst of all that noise. Because he says, now, the Lord Jesus has created a vacuum in your life. And the sound and sight of sin have no room to travel. He says, now if you are in Christ Jesus, the Lord sucks up all that is bad. And he gives you his light in return. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? As I've entitled our sermon, what does it mean to be spiritual? Let's look at a few verses Quickly, we must note first and foremost that it is of nothing in ourselves. And that should be kind of common sense. If it's being spiritual, it means being spirit-filled. It means that God's spirit must be the active agent in our life. And so that's why Paul says in verses 3 and following, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Meaning that after the fall, humanity was fundamentally broken. What it meant to be in the flesh, to have a human nature, was fundamentally flawed. So Christ must have come in our likeness. The likeness of sinful flesh. Remember, He isn't sinful, but He took on our human form and then led that perfect, obedient life so that He could condemn it in the flesh. And Paul continues on, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be spiritual? In short, it means that we must set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now how do we do that? Well, I think it's a two-step process. And if you've ever been out in nature, you've experienced this. I love going hiking and getting out. And I don't do it enough, but I love doing it when I do. And there's a great and wonderful thing that takes place when you're out in nature. You begin to realize just how many sounds there are out there. You begin to see all of the little animals scurrying about. And you, for a moment somewhat lose sight or maybe you lose the worry of your life 
You can leave it back in the office. You can leave it back at home and you can enjoy the stillness of being out in God's beautiful creation. You can enjoy what it means, as the psalmist says, to be still and to know that He is God. And that's the first thing that happens. You have everything slow down enough, the noise dies out enough that you can hear what's going on in your heart. You can know what's plaguing your mind. Many times I've been out on a hike and thought, that's what's been bothering me for three weeks. I couldn't tell you this because I was so busy in life. I didn't stop and take the time to think about it. But you know, the other thing that happens while you're out in nature is a beautiful thing. God begins to replace that noise of your life with all the beautiful sounds of His creation. He lets you experience and love that music that's out there waiting for us to enjoy. You know, it still doesn't give us a good three-step process, does it? still doesn't give us a nice practical guide we can whip out and say, oh, I hadn't been that much spiritual today. I need to check these things off. Yeah, I think that's because being spiritual is different from being religious. Many people in our culture are religious. Went to Sunday school today. Check. Charles, don't get mad at me. Going to Sunday school is wonderful. Our Christian Education Committee would greatly encourage it. But being religious isn't the answer. Coming to worship, check. Wednesday night Bible study, check. Prayer group, check. Being religious isn't the answer. Paul says you need to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit needs to dwell in you. You need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, I would argue I think it's a lot like learning how to play or enjoy music. You know, any musician will tell you, Patrick would tell you, how do you get good at music? Well, you need to practice. You need to play your scales. You need to practice all the notes, backwards and forwards, upside down and inside out. You need to memorize the music. You need to have a good teacher. And any musician can tell you that. But you know, if you ask the great musicians, what makes you a great musician? Most musicians aren't humble, they'll tell you right out, but you know, if you find a humble one, they'll tell you, it's all the people that I listen to. It's not really about the notes on the page that make someone musical. There's something non-technical, unlearned, dare I say, spiritual about music. You must listen to great musicians. You see, I think that's the same for being spiritual, for setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. But those of you who aren't musical, let me drive this metaphor home. What do I want you to do today? When you leave the service, what do I want you to do? Well, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to just start memorizing more Scripture. I don't want you to just start serving in the life of the church more. Those are wonderful things, but that's not where to start. You see, if you're struggling, if God is distant from you, if you feel cut off from everyone and everything that you love, if you're feeling apathetic, if you're feeling even the least bit lukewarm today, I don't want you to just try harder. 
That's never going to work. But I do want you to do one thing. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. You know, that word really comes from the Greek idea of making a home in you. It's that the Spirit comes into your life and says, you know what? This is my house. I own your life now. But the beautiful thing is, it's not a domineering someone who comes in and throws out all your stuff and totally destroys your life. He comes in and says, I'm going to make my home. And I'm going to redo it in a beautiful way. I'm going to take over And I'm going to give you great joy in the midst of sorrow. So I want you literally to wake up every day and say, Holy Spirit, come into my heart and take over my life. You know, I really, I want you to do that every time you pray. And you know, this, I don't mean this as just some cute exercise. I'm telling you to do this. This is something that you and I need to do every time that we come to God. Now, the obvious danger, admittedly, is that we can do this as well by rote, insensitive to the Spirit's leading. And so I say, when you pray that, also ask Him to protect you from becoming callous to His movement. But literally, every day, I want you to wake up and say, Holy Spirit, come, abide with me. I guarantee you, your life will be changed drastically. Your world will be turned upside down for the better. Maybe it just means that God's turning you and I right side up. But you see, that's what it means to be spiritual. It means to have the Spirit in control of your life living in you so that you feel His movement, you know His voice, and you follow His leading. The only way to become a great musician in that way is to hear the Spirit. And if you can't hear him, just ask him, speak up. I can't hear you. Where are you? Come into my life. I guarantee you, he will do it. And you know, the Spirit himself is actually the guarantee of our faith, as Paul says elsewhere. He actually is the seal that God will finish what he started. And as we look at the last few verses of our chapter... I want to make one correction on what many of us think being spiritual means. Look at verse 10 and following. Paul says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, something very important we need to remember about being spiritual. For all of the other religions in the world, being spiritual is equated to being religious. And that means that you can perform some activities or you can be a great prayer and God will look upon you with favor. But for Christianity, for the gospel according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, being spiritual is being spirit-filled and being spirit-led and being that in a way that is visible to the world. Being that in a way that is literally tangible in your life. So I beg of you to take stock of your own life. If you don't see the evidence of the Spirit moving, the obvious answer is that the Spirit isn't moving. So beg and plead for Him to come into your life and He will be faithful to do that. 
But He will literally be transforming your life. As Paul says, giving life to our mortal bodies in ways that we can see here and now that there's no condemnation, that we have fellowship with God and communion with Him. And you know, the greatest example, the most wonderful imagery that God has given us of this reality, that being spiritual is something that physically transforms our life, is right before us. Because we believe that the Spirit is moving in the Lord's Supper. But we believe it represents a tangible reality that just as you and I eat and drink bread and wine, just as we can digest that physically and have nourishment from it, the Spirit is literally renewing your life. And as Paul says, it's a war. The Spirit is the master of the house, but there are robbers and thieves that come in daily. Your sinful flesh, Satan afflicting you, all of those things are battling in your midst. So you may feel down now. You may feel particularly afflicted by your sin, but know that just as certain as you will taste bread and wine, the Lord has the victory. The Spirit will accomplish His end. That is His seal, that is His job in your hearts and in mind. Very quickly, I want to outline four ways that we can approach the table. Two of them are bad ways that we can approach the Lord's Supper. Two of them are good. Probably the most common and one of the bad ones is that we can simply approach the table with a careless mindset. And we can, as Paul says, not discern the Lord's body, eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And I would say that this simply means if we're coming to the table and we fail to recognize and deal with what Jesus has done on our behalf, the greatness of His sacrifice and His love for us, and His overwhelming power to save us and to change us through His Spirit, if we come and we don't recognize that, then we're coming wrongly. But you know, there's another way to approach the Lord's Supper that's bad, and that's staying away from the table. Because for some reason you think that you may be the person that is the exception to God's grace. That somehow the sin in your life is so great, the circumstances so bad that God couldn't love you, and therefore this table isn't for you. Beloved, that is a failure to recognize that the body and blood of Christ cover all the sin in your life. There is nothing that separates you from this table. If you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. But you know, there's two good ways to approach the Lord's Supper. If you don't believe this in your heart, if all that I've said this morning is foreign and alien to you and you reject it, if you do not believe that what the Bible maintains is true, then this table is not for you, and I beg you, do not eat and do not drink. If you do not feel and know your need of Him, then be honest with where you are. God wants sincerity more than conformity. But I beg you, spend the time in prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you and to bring you into newness of life. But finally, brothers and sisters, there's a right way to come to the table. If you, like Paul and like me, wake up every day and your sin smacks you right in the face, if you do the very thing that you hate, 
and you don't do the thing that you want to do, if you continually ask the question, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And if like Paul, you can give praise and say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you take great comfort in the first verse of our chapter, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this table is for you. It is not our table. It is not First ARP's table. It is Jesus Christ's table. And he offers it to all who would believe and trust in him. And we know this because he was resurrected from the dead. So beloved, if that same spirit that resurrected him from the dead, and we see the evidence of that in the bread and wine, if that same spirit is in your heart, if you are trusting in him, then come without money and buy. Dine with the Lord of Lords. This is a remembrance of all that Christ did on our behalf, His sacrifice and death. But beloved, it's much more than that. It's a celebration of His resurrection. It's an encouragement that one day we will all dine with Him. That literally we will walk in newness of life. That we will sup with our Lord and enjoy true communion with Him.